Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this morning, um, we are back in the book of Isaiah. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, and we're looking at chapters 40 to 42. Now, last Sunday, we looked uh, in broad, in a very broad fashion, an overview of chapters 40 to uh, 55, and that was to help us kind of get a lay of the land. And um, this morning, we're going to take, take it apart in uh, smaller chunks, a little bit smaller chunks. And um, I want you to notice the very first verse in chapter 40 in verse 1. Isaiah writes, and this is really God speaking, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. These simple words that we see laid out here in, these opening, in this opening verse capture the heart of chapters 40, 41, and the opening 17 verses of chapter 42. Chapter 39 ends with the Davidic king, Hezekiah, defecting from the Lord in pride. Not in an ultimate sense, but, but having, despite having been on the receiving end of the Lord's miraculous power and mercy, healing him from this terminal illness, extending his life by 15 years, despite all of that, you know, all Babylon had to do was bat their eyelashes at him a few times, and he completely rolled over and and shifted his allegiance and trust to a pagan king. Second Chronicles 32 uh, and verse uh, 31 tells us that God left Hezekiah to test him, that he might know all that was in his heart. And what we saw and learned last Sunday is that, uh, in the previous week when we were looking at chapter 39, is that the king, like the people, are faithless. They are, they are faltering in their, in their trust. Humanity's spiritual condition, apart from God's grace, is hopeless. Exile for Judah wasn't a matter of if, but when they were going into exile. In fact, Hezekiah receives that word. He says, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And it's not just that Judah will go into exile in a foreign land like like their neighbors Israel had done 20 years earlier. The very house of David, God's promises to David, his covenant promises are being put at risk. Verse 7, some of your sons who issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials, literally become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah's descendants, for them to be made eunuchs, would potentially wipe out David's house. It would, it would to call into question, for that to happen, would at least call into question God's faithfulness. How could God establish an everlasting kingdom through David's line if there were no sons of David left? And how could God's loving kindness never depart from David like he promised in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 15, if, how could God's loving kindness not depart from David like it had from Saul if, like Saul, David's line is extinguished? How, how does that happen? The Lord's words here at the end of 39 to Hezekiah, that Judah would be carried away to Babylon, would have swept the legs out from underneath the remnant who were faithful. Even though Hezekiah, don't look at Hezekiah's response because his response is selfish indifference. This was a serious and sweeping judgment. But no sooner does God bring words of judgment 
then God brings words of comfort as you look at chapter 40. Now, our chapter divisions, there's nothing inspired about those chapter divisions. In the original text, it just flows right from 39 right into chapter 40. And he says, comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. This is, this is why we said that both in terms of content and tone, the transition from 39 to 40 marks a significant shift in the book. A big change. Uh, and, and as Israel and Judah have been staring down these existential threats from the surrounding nations in the first 39 chapters, the question has been whether they'll take God at his word and trust his promises. Are they going to believe him, or are they going to anchor their trust in their own efforts and their own works? And everywhere we've, in the text up to this point that we've seen parts walking in rebellion and pride and self-sufficiency, the Lord brings chastening. He brings judgment. He brings discipline. But everywhere we saw individuals walking by faith, what is, ha- what is happening? The Lord's bringing compassion. The Lord is showing mercy. The Lord is pouring out grace. But at the end of 39, Isaiah wants you and I to come to terms with the fact that final salvation and covenant blessings will never be ultimately realized through Hezekiah or any other earthly ruler. We are left as we said before, at the end of 39, with the question of chapter 1 still unanswered, how does the faithless city and the faithless king, how does that become a faithful city ruled by a faithful king? How will God's people finally be convinced to trust him and to take him at his word and to make that the enduring pattern of their lives? Because even after exile, As they come back into the land, the spiritual issues have not changed. Nothing has changed. And and they will still have wayward hearts. The question remains, can that be remedied? How can that be remedied? And by whom will that be remedied? These would have been the lingering questions of those in the exile and those generations who come back to the land after in hopes of rebuilding. All the words of promise that they've read and heard, not just through Isaiah, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who's an, he's an exilic prophet. All the glimpses of kingdom glory that they've seen through these opening 39 chapters. All the portraits of God's people, Jew and Gentile, standing triumphant with Yahweh ruling over the nations, a renewed heaven and a new earth. That's all well and good, but the question is, how is it going to happen? And who is going to make it happen? Alongside that question of how and by whom, this is the question our text is answering this morning. Does God even care to? Have Israel and Judah come to the end of their, quote-unquote, proverbial rope with God? And is God just sort of like done with them? In chapter 49 and verse 14, this exact accusation is leveled by God's people against him. With Zion saying, the Lord has forsaken me. And the Lord has forgotten me. That was their impression. But no sooner can the thought be formed in their head than the Lord bursts through with these words in chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people. Will God deal with the heart of the problem, which we said is the problem of the human heart? Does God have a man, a faithful servant at the ready who can, once and for all, save his people from their sinful ways and cleanse them from the inside out. And if he does, if so, does he want to? And that is what is made clear to us in chapters 40 to 55. 
40 to 55 are God's answer to the unresolved questions of the opening 39 chapters. These chapters are meant to sustain a people in exile. They are, they are meant to, to lift up a people under God's judgment to give them assurance that renewal and restoration will come. God had not been defeated by the false gods of Babylon, right? I mean, they were in captivity, so it seems like maybe Babylon's gods are greater than our God. God had not been one-upped by any earthly superpower. God hadn't even been hamstrung by the faithlessness and idolatry of his own people. Despite all that was going on around them, at bottom, the Lord is the King of kings, and the Lord is the one who is worthy always of our trust. And God wastes no time reassuring them of his care. He says, comfort, comfort my people. This is why why it's so important for us to wrap our minds around the big picture of Scripture. Um, And not just to silo ourselves in each individual part. And that's sometimes how we have heard the Bible uh, and studied the Bible, how we've heard it taught, how we've studied it. Because the scriptures are a, are a divine book, right? Its authors are human, but they're also, the author is God, as the Holy Spirit inspires and carries those individuals along to write his words. We need to understand that because it is a divine book, that each of the parts connects and contributes to the whole. They fit together. Unbelievers, and sometimes even immature Christians, will sometimes downplay the Old Testament, writing it off as a lot of judgment. They don't, they, you know, God is just killing everybody, and it's condemning everybody. It's just blood and death and corruption and judgment. And, and then the thinking goes, when you come to the New Testament, you see a God full of mercy and forgiveness and grace and, and so forth. That's, that's the argument that is sometimes put out there. And so the implication, of course, of that kind of thought process is that the God represented in the Old Testament is bad. We don't want to have anything to do with him. But the God in the New Testament, you know, that's someone we can get behind. And I would just, I would just say, if that is your take on the Old Testament, or you know someone like that, beloved, they don't understand the Old Testament. They just don't. You, you are likely too focused on each of the parts and not seeing how the parts fit together in the whole. And the end of 39 into 40, that's a perfect illustration of my point. Because as Hezekiah gives in his, to his pride in chapter 39, God pronounces judgment, right? You are going into exile. You and all that you have, all that God has given to you, it is going into exile, right? And, and so our, you know, hypothetical person would say, see, that's how God is. He's just always condemning. You step over the line and boom, you get your, your knuckles racked. But what so many over, fail, overlook and fail to understand as they come to chapters 40 to 42 is that while God is a word of judgment for one nation, Judah, immediately in chapters 40 to 42, he has multiple words of comfort that not only wrap their arms around Judah, but all the nations of the world. God doesn't just care about Israel and Judah, though he does. God cares about the nations. The promise of covenant blessings aren't just reaffirmed in our text for, for the Jews, but covenant blessings will be extended to the Gentiles also. So if you don't understand how the parts contribute to the whole or how one thing is alongside the other and we don't see the big picture, 
You miss that. It just, you don't see it. So far from being a God of stone-cold justice, what we understand is, as, as we understand how the parts fit into the whole, we actually see the exact opposite. We see a God of super abounding grace and mercy and covenant faithfulness. And so as we come to our text this morning, in Isaiah 40 to 42, we're going to learn that our God cares for his sheep, his faithless, faltering, flailing sheep, both Jew and Gentile, and he will move heaven and earth to bring them to himself. And we're going to see that in two kind of movements. We'll see that in words of comfort to Israel in chapter 40 and all the way into chapter 41 in verse 20. We'll see words of comfort to Israel. And then in chapter 41, verse 21, all the way to chapter 42 and verse 17, we'll see it in words of comfort to the nations. So words of comfort to Israel and words of comfort to the nations. So we want to begin where the text begins in chapter 40 and verse 1, and we see God giving words of comfort to Israel, his covenant people. We said with the difficult word from from, uh, Isaiah in chapter 39, that everything would be deported, that Hezekiah's descendants would be would be um, uh, made eunuchs, that the, the monarchy seems, we said, to be hanging on a knife's edge. And God's promises seem to be soon to falter. But no sooner does a word of judgment come in chapter 39 that a chorus of voices commanded by the Lord himself deliver words of comfort in verses 1 to 11. Look at verses 1 and 2. He says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now you may not pick it up in your translation, but these, uh, chapter 40 and verse 1, those are plural imperatives. God is commanding a whole host of individuals to bring comfort, to, con- to bring consolation, to bring pity, to lift the burden of sorrow that he has placed on them, that is resting on them, to give them emotional strength in the midst of their disappointment. He says, he calls a whole army of people to do that. And he says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Literally, speak to the heart. This is the way, guys, that we woo our wives and seek to win them over when there's been a disagreement. We speak to their heart, right? You talk differently to your spouse when you want to call them back. There's a certain way we speak to them to draw them back in, to restore peace and joy in the relationship. And that's what he's saying here in verse 2. God affirms that Israel and Judah's sin has been dealt with through their appointed time of hardship, literally their warfare or hard service. The requirements of God's holiness have been satisfied. Now, we don't know how. We don't know why until later on in chapter 53, but it has been covered. They had received for their covenant unfaithfulness what was fitting and corresponding to the offense. He says at the end of verse 2 that they have received double for all her sins. Now, that word double really means to fold over. It's not that they got twice as much as they deserved. That's not the point. But when you fold a piece of paper over, what do you have? You have each side corresponds to the other. That's the picture here. In other words, he's saying they have received an exact correspondence between their sins and the payment that that sin required. They have suffered enough. 
God's people had abandoned him, and it rightly caused a breach in their relationship with God. But he says he has not abandoned them. This is the character of divine love. Human expressions of love so often are conditional, right? They're conditional. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But you offend me, you disappoint me, you fail to live up to my expectations in any way, I'm done with you. But that's not the case with God. We rebel against him. He moves toward us with comfort, consolation, and provision. Hundreds of years, think about it, hundreds of years of idolatry, indifference, pride, and unfaithfulness had marked Israel and Judah's relationship with the Lord. And yet, look how eager, look how earnest, look how, how quickly he calls back, consoles, and cares for his children. I mean, you have to see it. God has commanded a chorus of voices to comfort his people. And three voices obey the call in verses 3 to 11. In verse 3, it says, A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The first voice here in verse three, that the Lord and all of his is, is, is heralding that the Lord and all of his glory is coming to reveal his personal presence. And there's a universal dimension to that across the whole globe. The imagery that he uses here of clearing the way, making smooth, lowering every mountain, turning the rugged terrain into a broad valley, it, the point of that is to show that the journey is effortless and therefore it is certain. He will come. The ultimate fulfillment, of course, of this passage is seen in the Gospels when John the Baptist becomes the forerunner of the Lord Jesus as he began his earthly ministry. You see that in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, Matthew says, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Isaiah says, God our God is coming in all of his glory across the desert to his people's rescue, just like he did when he led them out of exile in Egypt. He's coming in his personal presence. We see this picture of God riding across the desert in Psalm 68 in verse 4 and verse 7. It says, sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord and exult before him. God, oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, God led them through that. And he says, this is what God is going to do. A second voice calls out here in the text in verses six to eight. A voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. But the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This second voice places our breathiness, 
alongside God's permanence. And this contrast here is meant to show that while you and I come and go like the grass clippings and cut flowers, here today, gone tomorrow, there is one who has always been and always will be. And what he promises, the point is, what he promises, he will perform. That's the point. And then there's a third voice that calls out in verses 9 to 11, revealing that God's promised rescue that he foretold already in verses 3 to 4, that's a sure thing. He says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And like a shepherd, he will tend his flock, and in his arm he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Exile, whether that's exile from Babylon or the exile of God's scattered people across the globe, is not God's final word. Like children who have stumbled and fallen and are now scuffed and bruised, their heavenly Father, strong and loving, will rush in to scoop them up and to console them in his everlasting arms. That's the picture here in verse 11. And so there's this chorus of comfort that is laid out here. God will ride effortlessly to the rescue. He will provide shepherding care for his people. And nothing can stop this from happening because his word stands eternally. One word of judgment at the end of 39 is given, but it is immediately met with three voices of comfort. So the comfort overtakes the judgment. But how can Judah be so sure that God will come? That God will be there to pick them up and dust them off? And the answer that he gives is really twofold. In verses 12 to 31, the reason they can be confident that God will do this is first because he is the creator of heaven and earth. Our God is the creator of heaven and earth. From, chapter, uh, from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter in verse 31, there is a barrage of rhetorical questions that God uses to make clear that he is unparalleled in every way to the so-called gods of this world and every created thing. He shows us that he is the sovereign creator with unparalleled wisdom in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Verse 14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? God is unparalleled in his wisdom. The sovereign creator we see is unparalleled in his greatness. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. He's the sovereign creator we see in verse 18 with unparalleled distinctiveness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? He is the sovereign creator with unparalleled dominion. 
Look at verse 22. He says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch, stretches out the heavens like a curtain and speeds them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth nothing. He is a sovereign creator with unparalleled management of the cosmos. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. And again, we said the argument is is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God is able to create and name all the stars in the universe and not one of them slips his mind, how could he possibly forget his people? How could he possibly forget us and let us slide through his grasp? And this barrage reaches its apex in verses 28 to 31 where we see God, the creator, unparalleled in his self-giving. Do you not know? Verse 28, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Our God is the everlasting God. In other words, there's no time when he is not. Our God is the creator of the heavens, at the ends of the earth, it says here. There's, there's not a place where he is not. He does not become weary, Isaiah tells us, or tired. His strength doesn't fade. He never has a shortage of inner resources that l- would limit him. His understanding is inscrutable, unsearchable. He can't be limited by some kind of lack of knowledge. He knows all things. So Isaiah is just stringing attribute after attribute together, one after another, forcing you, forcing me, and every human being to face the absurdity of unbelief. Why would you not trust the one who is all-wise, greater than any created thing, utterly unique, all-powerful, the supreme manager of the cosmos, and so full of life in himself that he can give existence to every created thing and still not be the slightest bit diminished. He knows our frailty. He knows that we are but dust, and therefore he gives of himself freely to any and all who wait for him, who wait, hope, trustingly, is the picture there in verse uh, In verse uh, 29, no fabrication of man's hand, no imagination of our hearts could ever do that. So we see God will be there to pick them up, not only because he's the creator of heaven and earth, but secondly, in verses 41, chapter 41, verses 1 to 7, he shows us that God will be there to pick them up because he is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of history. The Lord of history is the managing director of all the events of human history. We saw that in chapters 13 to 23, and that's reiterated here at the opening verses of chapter 41. The question that these rhetorical questions ask and answer is this, who rules the world? Who rules the world? Look at verse 2. Who has aroused one from the east? 
whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings and makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety by a way he has not traversed with his feet, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generation from the beginning. And the answer at the end of verse 4 is the Lord. I, the Lord, am the one who's doing this. I am the first and with the last. I am he. But not only does God rule the world, he exposes the futility of the world's idolatries. And that's what you see pictured in verses 5 to 7. Human fear, driving human collaboration, relying on human skill, trying to prop up and, and bolster human stability. He shifts gears in verse 5, and he describes basically what unbelievers are doing with idols. The coastlands is always kind of a reference to the nations, the unbelieving nations. The coastlands have seen and are afraid when they see God at work. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter. This is the idol maker. And he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. This is man trying to fabricate an idol to save him. And God says, what is that? What is that? The reality is that idols, whether they're literal, physical idols or immaterial things that we trust in, are simply monuments to human weakness. Their power is no greater than its source. And just as there are three voices of comfort at the outset, God pairs up with three, pairs that up with three pictures of comfort for Israel and Judah in verses 8 to 13. Excuse me, 8 to 20. Some of you are maybe auditory learners, and some of you are more visual learners. God says, let me paint an image in your mind's eye so that you can picture what I will do for you. And that's what you see him doing at the end of this section from verse 8 in chapter 41 all the way down to verse 20. The first picture he, he paints is, the, he shows them that though you're lowly, I will give you victory. Though you are lowly, I will give you victory. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not rejected you. Israel's referred to here as a servant. They are, they, they are taken from the remotest parts of the earth. They are nobodies. Servants are nobodies. But God led them out triumphant, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So though you're lowly, he says, I will give you victory. Secondly, a second image is given in verses 14 to 16. We see, though you are inconsequential, he says, I will completely transform you. Though you're inconsequential, I will completely transform you. Look at verse 14. He says, do not fear, you worm, Jacob. You men of Israel, I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. And you will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. 
Jacob is referred to here as a worm, a nobody. And yet God is going to make them a threshing sledge. This metaphorical language here, a threshing sledge. It's an ancient agricultural device. It's basically a board with notches cut in it with stones or other sharp edges kind of laid out in the stone. And then they would drag it over the wheat. This, this rough platform, they would drag it by an animal over the wheat and chop up and cut up all the, all the wheat into smaller pieces so it could be, so it could be um, sifted. He says, I'm going to make you a threshing sledge and you will thresh the mountains. This little old worm is going to chop up mighty mountains and sift them like wheat. This is, this is a total transformation. There's a third picture that's given in verses 17 to 20. He says, though you're needy, I will, make, I will be your provision. Though you're needy, I will be your provision. The afflicted and the needy, verse 17, are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. So Israel is nothing, but he says, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. Verse 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys, and I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. Why is he going to do this? Verse 20, that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. This is a miraculous provision given by God to Israel through innovation, through multiplication, verse 18, through transformation. The dry lands become fountains of water. And it's going to have the Lord's fingerprints all over it. God's not just going to rescue them. He says, I'm going to shepherd my people, and he's going to do it in such a way that he gets all the glory. He gets all the praise because he's worthy of all of it. And so this is the picture that Isaiah gives to Israel, primarily Israel and Judah in these opening verses. It's comfort, provision for the needy, transformation for the negligible, victory for the lowly, comfort on top of comfort on top of, on top of comfort. And it is given, and sure, because it is given by the God who controls all things. Now, all that's well and good for Israel and Judah, but what about the rest of us? What about us Gentiles, the goyim? Does God care for his people uh, just in Israel and Judah and pull up short for the rest of us? When God, we have to understand when God made his covenant with Abraham, he promised that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so is there no word of comfort for for the nations? Is God only concerned about Israel? And the answer to that is, you know, of course not. Who, the God who can't forget his chosen people can't forget the far reaches of his creation either. The, the final verses of chapter 41 and the first 17 verses of chapter 42, God gives words of comfort to the nations. Verses 21 to 29, can, you can break it down into two parallel halves, and they're kind of mirror one another. And Isaiah uses courtroom imagery. He's always jumping around using word pictures. 
He's using courtroom imagery like he's done before to describe the sad state of the Gentile world and its so-called gods. Look at verse 21. Present your case. Come to court, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments. The king of Jacob says, let, let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. Speaking of the idols. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterwards, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, speaking to the idols, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. The question before the court is this, can any false god predict the future? I'm just asking, God says. And the obvious answer is they cannot, and therefore they're impotent and worthless. The living God, however, has his hand in the glove of all of human history and is able to tell us what's going to happen long before he does it. Verse 25, as for me, he says, I have aroused one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun. He will call on my name, and he will come upon rulers as upon mortar, even as the potter treads clay. At the first, literally, formally, at the first, I said to Zion, look, here they are, behold, here they are, and to Jerusalem I will give a messenger of good news. As God looks around at the nations, does he see any rival gods who are able to do what he does? And the answer is he does not. Verse 28, when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. Behold, all of them are false, their works are worthless, their molten images are wind and emptiness. So he begins by just explaining the sorry state of the nations without divine revelation. They are blind, without counsel. None, you know, they ask for help and they get nothing in return. The nations put their hand into a spiritual bag and all they pull out is nothingness. And this is what Peter's referring to, for instance, in 1 Peter 1, where he says in verse 18 that our existence before Christ, as he refers to as our futile way of life inherited from our forefathers. It's all wind and emptiness. So Isaiah begins with this word of comfort in an unusual way by exposing the, the darkness and the futility of the pagan world apart from the knowledge of God. He has laid bare the futility of idols, right? He says in verse 24, Behold, meaningless idols, they are of no account. In verse 29, he says, Behold, all of them are false, deluded idolaters. But as you come to chapter 42, and this is intentional, the same word is repeated a third time, and he says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. So there's a contrast to the vain, worthless, powerless idols of the nations. And God summons the nation to look at his servant. And the Lord's servant is God's gracious response to the sad spiritual condition of the nations who are perishing in rebellion. They are perishing in idolatry. In chapter 42, we're finally introduced to the Lord's servant who will bring justice and divine truth, not just to Israel, but to the nations. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. God's personal chosen agent, filled with the Spirit's power, is going to be the source of worldwide revelation and comfort to the nations. That's the scene that's unfolding here. And this is the first of four servant songs that we see in this chapter, in, in these chapters, from chapter 40 to 55. These key passages about the Lord's personal chosen agent who will bring salvation to the world. And each servant song has this little tag at the end of it that reinforces what's already been said. And that's what you see in verses 5 to 9. God's servant will be the one through whom and in whom ultimate salvation and covenant blessings will come to the nations. Look at verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you, speaking of his servant, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and to those who dwell in darkness from prison. God's covenant people failed. They were supposed to be the billboard to the nations, and they were not. They were blind and they were deaf. And so it will fall to the God himself to deliver mankind from his sinful condition. And he's going to do it through his servant. He's going to do it through his servant, opening blind eyes and leading captives out of darkness into the true knowledge of himself. And closing off this section, describing both the futility and the salvation of the Gentile world, verses 10 to 11, picture the ends of the earth, the islands, and the Gentile towns of Kedar and Selah, all coming together in universal praise to the Lord, who is described as a mighty warrior marching against his enemies. A new song arises because he says in verse 9, I declare new things. The old things have passed away. New things are coming. And those new things give way to universal praise across the nations. Verse 14, the Lord's silence has been broken. I have kept silent for a long time. This is referring to um, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, he, he speaks about how we were without God and without strangers for the covenants and the promises. He says, I have been silent for a long time. But he says, now, like a woman in labor, I will groan, I will both gasp and pant. And he says, I'm going to lead these people out among the nations. Look at verse 16. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will mark, make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things that I will do, and I will not leave them undone. And when it happens, when it, happens it will be the Lord's work, right? He says, these are the things I do. I will not leave them undone. This is God saving his people. This is God redeeming for himself, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation through the substitutionary work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And unsurprisingly, Jesus' presence 
and his preaching in Galilee are described in just these terms in the Gospels. He's described as bringing light to those sitting in darkness in the Gospels. Jesus is described, his coming is described as light dawning on those trapped in the shadow of death. This is in fulfillment of the word spoken through Isaiah. So the question comes, does God care for his sheep? Does God care for his faithless, faltering, flailing sheep, both Jew and Gentile? And will he move heaven and earth to bring them to himself? I think if you're honest with these, or just a, a quick study through these chapters, we have to say, yes, he will. He will. And if these chapters don't convince you, I'm not sure what will. But don't just take it from me. Hear the words of the Lord, the Lord's servant himself. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Uh, John chapter 10, excuse me. John chapter 10. In verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and not, a concern, and not concerned about the sheep. But he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You might say, yeah, but he's talking to Israelites in the land of Israel. What about the nations? Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one no one will snatch them out of my hand. So the question this morning is, do you, do you hear the shepherd's voice? Are you striving to follow him by faith? Have you forsaken the futility of idols, refusing to trust in your own efforts to get to God? If that's the case, then these words are for you this morning. Comfort, comfort my people. Let's pray. Father, we long to know the comfort and the consolation and the encouragement of your word. Lord, we struggle in a world that is dominated by sin and rebellion and idolatry and all that is false. And you have called us out of darkness through your son into the marvelous light of his eternal kingdom. We pray, Lord, that we would remember that you will move and have moved heaven and earth to call us, to save us, and to keep us. And so whether we are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, man or woman, uh, the gospel is for all who will come to you. And I pray that if there's any here this morning who don't know you, who haven't trusted in you, who are still looking to the vain things of this world, help them to see that it's all wind and emptiness and to see Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. May they look away from their own works, their own man-made efforts, and may they look to the perfect work of Christ and look to him and him alone. May you draw hearts to yourself this morning. May you comfort those who are weary. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information, 
or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.